Well, good morning, church. Excited to be here with you today. Um, I've already warned the guys in the back that I'm a walker, so I apologize. I apologize for those at home trying to keep up with this. Uh, A little bit of ADD, a little bit of those issues going on, but I'm going to do the best that I can. Karen, thank you for that. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to go speak. I have the opportunity to speak quite a bit, um, not only here in the U.S., but in, in the Dominican Republic. Um, the Dominican Republic is who I work kind of probably most uh, around the world. Um, I'm a director of mobilization there at SCORE International. I work with our Lawrence Baptist Association as well uh, to, to basically take churches in our community uh, for the Lawrence Baptist Association. And, um, and what I do is try to take those churches and I try to um, get them focused in a, what I call an Acts 1-8 plan, a Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth for their church and how they can be plugged into true missiology to what it really means to do missions from a biblical standpoint. So excited anytime that I can teach. Um, I, I, I tell you this, your pastor, uh, your former pastor is dear to me. Chad Zook and I, I would consider one of my great friends, him and his family. His wife has poured into my children. I'll get to them in just a second. And uh, I just had the opportunity to, to be his friend, and that's a great thing. And he's done an incredible job here. I was talking to someone in your church earlier and said, you know, it's unique what you're going through right now because a lot of churches that are looking for a new pastor, there's turmoil, there's been hurt, there's been... And what we see here is just a great, um, a great foundation. And we're going to talk about that today, about foundation. I see Gracie out there. She's my favorite Zook. Don't tell anybody that. Um, I always love to embarrass Gracie because she's great at that. I, I love embarrassing. I was thinking, Gracie, have you come up here and sing? Um, I did that to her in the Dominican Republic before, just said, hey, you're singing, get ready, be prepared. And she just, you know, that look of... Uh, yeah, deer in the headlights, but she, I made her, and she did a great job. You know um, her talents as well. I want to um, first introduce a little bit uh, what I would call the best thing that I have um, going for me, and that's my family. Um, so my wife is right back here. Oh, let me apologize first before I, before I do this. I know in a church uh, we have sat in somebody's assigned seat, and I apologize for that. <laughs> I got you today. Um, so I speak a lot, and by the way, that's only an American thing. You know, you go into a village and you speak, <laughs> ain't nobody got an assigned seat, but it's true, it's just reality here, so I apologize. Um, but this is my wife back here, Kristen Grooms. Um, she's the glue that makes everything work in my life. Um, she uh, keeps me on track, she's my technology guru, she's my editor, she's everything, um, and she just makes it work. And um, two of my four children are here. Um, my oldest is a daughter named Mackenzie Grooms. She, um, she is a student under Karen, um, 16 years old. Um, then we have three boys. I have a 14-year-old boy named Colby. And then right back here is Coley. Coley, raise your hand. That's Coley. Yeah, Coley and Colby is very difficult in life, um, and I've never called them the right names. Um, and then you have Gabriel. Gabriel, raise, raise your hand there. There's Gabriel. And so, um, tell you a little bit about our family. A few years ago, um, 
Kristen and I were at a conference in Atlanta, a leadership conference, and there was a lady speaking there, and her name was Katie Davis. I don't know if you ever heard of Katie Davis. She wrote the book Kisses from, from Katie. I think that's the name of it. And they were interviewing her on stage, and, they, and um, she was, not, uh, I think, 20 at the time. Right out of high school, she, God called her to go teach in Uganda. And um, anyway, she told her parents, basically, I'm going to Uganda to teach. And she went and taught for a year. That's all it was supposed to be. And she came back. She looked at her mom and dad, and she said, hey, listen, God's called me to move to Uganda forever and start a ministry for orphans. And so they were like, uh, we, don't, we don't think that's a great idea. She says, I'm leaving. God's called me. Um, and anyway, she moved to Uganda and two years later adopted nine, nine young ladies. Um, and they asked her that they changed our life. This question changed our life. They had Katie on stage and they were interviewing. They said, why in the world would you adopt nine girls at not 19 years old? And this is what she said changed our life. She said this. She said, because God didn't ask us to care for the orphan, he commanded us to. So Kristen looked at me, I looked at her, and we said, you know what we got to do? We got to be obedient to God's word. And it was a journey. It was a journey, about a five-year journey, and God completed our family, um, and we have four amazing kids, and just a huge part of what we do around the world. So that's my family. And uh, like I said, Kristen is so thankful she's here with me today. And um, like I said, holds us together. I mentioned our, the, the Zooks and the friendship we have. We have a very similar passion, Chad and I, and it's discipleship and missions. And you're going to hear a little bit about that today as we talk about foundations. I'm going to give you a little bit about what I do. I work for the Lawrence Baptist Association as a missions planner. I told you earlier that I try to connect churches with missions here locally, domestically, and then also internationally. And then I work with SCORE International doing the same thing, but from a whole domestic standpoint. All over the United States, I'm working with teams, short-term teams going in with long-term missionaries and pastors to be able to reach their people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, I love it. I, I count it a, um, an awesome, awesome blessing to be able to do that for a living. Uh, sometimes I have to wake up and say, man, I get to do this today. You know, I always talk when I, when I teach about there's a difference in life and as a follower of Jesus the two, in two phrases that I get to and I got to. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today as well. So let me pray for us and we're going to jump into uh, our focus today, which our foundation on which we build. Let me pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the opportunity to wake up this morning to that you gave us breath in our lungs, that we are alive. God, we thank you for that. Help us, God, to learn, teach us, grow us today. Help us not to be a group of ameners, of people who just say amen, but help us to be a people who put into action what you have called us to do and do it in a way that, that is a die-to-self mentality. God, we love you today. In your name, amen. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, the gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in two of the gospels today. We're going to connect those. And I want you to just try to follow along with me. I'm not a slide guy. We're laughing because Chad was a slide guy. I'm not a slide guy, and that's okay because I'm, 
I'm not a big technology guy as far as that goes because I just don't, I'm not that good at that stuff. So we're going to just teach today and um, grow from it. Matthew chapter 7 today, give you a little bit of background right here. So Jesus is speaking, we're going to be in verse 21, and he just walks through, just walks through in verses 15 through 20, this false teachers to be aware that they're out there and we have to be careful. And then what I want to do is pick up a little bit in verse 21, because now he's identifying true believers. Okay. And then what he's going to do is talk about the foundation of those true believers. And I want us to get this. So everybody look at verse 21. Let's read. Not everyone who says to me, verse 21 of chapter 7, Lord, Lord, will enter to the kingdom of heaven. But only those who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform miracles? Then I will tell them very plainly, I never knew you away from me or in other versions, depart from me. Now let's pause there for a second, because when we read that, I think when we read that, it's, it's shocking, right? Or maybe it's not shocking to look at the current culture that we live in today and the world around us and everything that just seems like is just falling apart. You ever feel like that when you look around the world? Culture, everything that's happening. And Jesus I, I love to, to the life of Jesus. I love studying it because what I love about Jesus, like he doesn't mince words. He's very, very clear. I taught high school students uh, Trinity, including a school in North Carolina for almost well, for 20 years. And I used to always hear this. Well, there's a lot of gray area, isn't there, coach? There's, no, 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 no. We make the gray area. We make the gray area. Because Jesus in Scripture is very clear. The problem is when we hear Jesus speak, it's, it's shocking to us because we realize from the foundation of what Jesus said, it's going to cost me something. And in the United States of America, that is a very precious thing, the things that we have. And when it, we have to really sit back and evaluate and say, this is going to cost me something. I remember when God said, you're going to adopt two little boys. The first thing I thought was, oh man, how hard is this going to be? People say, oh, oh you've, ado- you've adopted all oh, your... No, 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 no. It's the hardest thing we've ever had to do in our lives. It's not glorious. It's hard. And I love how Jesus does it because he's always very here. Here it is. Take it or leave it. He says not everyone's going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone. And then he does something very interesting. He gives us a parable. And so remember, he, he, right before this, he's talking about false teachers. Then Jesus is identifying true believers. And then he tells us the foundation of those true believers. You know, I heard this story when I was a kid. We've all heard it if we grew up in the church, right? 
the foundation, the, the rock in the sand, and we sang songs about it. But this is, this is deep. Look at what he says in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, I want to key on a word here or a phrase, and that's this. I've got it circled in Scripture. It says, and puts them into practice. Everybody see that? And puts them into practice. One of the greatest lies that Satan has allowed to or has, has permeated our culture today is this. You can't judge me. That's not true. Why? Now, it may not be nice to judge someone, but the reality is we're judged every day by everyone around us. Right? And what, did, what do we see in Scripture? The Bible says very clearly we're being judged. And he says very clearly kind of the thought to that. And what is it? You will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit. So he says this. Everybody look there with me in verse 25. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Church, what you're going through right now, this transition time, and whoever, by the way, God knows who's going to be the next man standing in this pulpit. That's an exciting thing. One thing you can never forget during this transition time is this. The foundation must be on the rock. That's what we cannot forget. In everything we do, in everything we say, it joyed my heart to sit here today, sit here today and see the announcements. Why? Because a lot of times in churches in transitions like this, ministry stops when the pastor leaves. That's an unhealthy thing. But I see that we're continuing to go and do it. He says this in verse 26, But everyone who hears these words of mine does not put them into practice. It's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell with a great crash. Now, I could ask for a raise of hands, and everybody's heard that parable, right? And it seems so simple, right? But I want to point out a few things here. Number one, let me say it again. False teachers, Jesus goes from false teachers to identifying truth or true believers and now to the foundation, to that foundation. See, foundations for a believer is everything. It's everything or we're going to fall. And by the way, foundations are a continual daily thing. It's not a one-time thing where we say we build today, but it's a continual upkeep of the foundation every day, committing to build with Christ. Christ is our foundation, and His Word is active and living and absolute. Did you hear that last word? 
It's absolute. We live in a culture today that absolutely despises something called absolute truth. They despise it. A few weeks ago, maybe a month now, I was in the Dominican Republic teaching uh, about, I don't, I don't know now, about 12 college students in the Dominican Republic. And I taught for a week, and we taught on worldviews. And we taught on absolute truth. I took a day, about four and a half hours, and all we, we poured into was absolute truth. Our culture today does not want you to believe in absolute truth. They don't. They want you to believe in something that's taught on college campuses and high school campuses across this land. It's called situational ethics. The situation dictates your moral stance. That's evil. His word is active and living and absolute. Postmodernism in this country is destroying our institutions. Humanism in this country is destroying our institutions, and it's because we have not stood on this. We haven't. You know why we haven't? Because it costs. You know, I, I um, as Karen said, uh, many years ago, we planted uh, with, I think, five other families, we planted a church in our community. And I'll be honest with you, I know I'm on TV but I remember I made, we made a lot of mistakes. Thank God for grace, right? But I remember going into this and, and, and I'm thinking, man, we're going to plant this church and we got the greatest idea on the planet and we're going to roll it out and next Sunday a thousand people are going to show up. You know what I realize? That's a man-made idea. And it took us some time and it took some lumps in the road to realize that this must be the foundation. You know, in America, we think bigger is better. I've seen it all over the Dominican Republic. Some of the sweetest services, some of the sweetest churches I've ever been in in my life are with Haitians sitting in front of you, and there's 25 of them, and they have nothing except this. It's unbelievable. So this, this is a biblical worldview. What is a biblical worldview? I, I taught that to those students in the Dominican Republic, and none of them had an idea. What does that mean? I think Barna says uh, the average church person doesn't even believe in a biblical worldview. I think, it's, I think it was, and, 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 and I may be wrong on this, but I think Barna said about 10 years ago, about 80% of people who say they have a biblical worldview don't even believe the Bible is inerrant. That's scary. So a question we can ask is this. What does that look like? What does a biblical worldview look like? Now that's a, that's a, a word we've modern word, those, that phrase, a biblical worldview. But I believe it's addressed very clearly in Scripture. From what Jesus showed us and what he taught us and what he continually poured into his disciples over and over and over. You know, when I think of the, the, the word uh, worldview, there's something that comes to mind, and that is the Great Commission. You know, I believe the Great Commission 
is one of the most understood terms in all of, in all of the Bible, or all of biblical speak, I, I guess you could say. And here's why, because, I, now listen, when I, when I say this, it may shock some of you, and you may never ask me back again, but let me explain. A lot of people believe the Great Commission is about evangelism. The Great Commission is about discipleship. Discipleship leads to evangelism. It's cyclical. It's cyclical. But see, true missiology is not, hey, we're going to get on a plane and we're going to go to the Dominican Republic and you're going to go, no, 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 no. True discipleship starts with, or true mission starts with true discipleship. And that starts in your home. And the pastor is not your discipler. The model is the husband is the discipler. And it spreads from there. And you know what? You know why the people don't like to hear that today in this culture? Because that takes too much time. That takes too much time. I don't get numbers from that. I don't fill the seats from that. I can't report that I have a thousand people coming. Because it takes time to disciple someone. And it takes life lessons. And it takes hurts. And it is a mess to truly disciple someone. And the question that we've got to ask ourselves is, are we willing to get in the mess with people because, remember this, the last thing Jesus told us is to go make disciples. And by the way, that wasn't a suggestion. It was a command. Go make disciples. You know what I found in the church today? And this isn't a knock, it's just truth. I found in the church today that most people have never made a disciple. I think the, 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 the statistic is somewhere around 95% have never made a disciple. Now, we can either knock those people or we can ask another question. Why? You know what I found? Because most of those people have never been discipled. It's not that they don't want to disciple, but they don't know how to disciple. Listen, I'm working with missionaries right now that are missionaries on foreign soil that have never been discipled. Think about that for a second. And what do we have to do? We have to sit down and guess what we do? We disciple. And, and the main focus of discipleship should be to teach the disciple to be a self-feeder on God's word. So then they can go make disciples. So let's look in uh, the Gospel of Luke really quick. Let's look what Dr. Luke has to say to us. Luke chapter 10. I'm, not a, I'm usually typically not a, a mover of, into the Scripture, but I want, to, I want you to see this. Let me pause there before I jump. In. I'm going to tell you a little story. I'm a storyteller. I apologize. Some people hate when, when speakers tell stories. I think Jesus told stories, we call them parables, right? I think he did that because the average person needed to hear these and connect them with life. And so I'm going to tell you a story. It's a true story. So I'm going to ask the, the guys in the back to put a picture up for me. Just start with the first picture. So I want you to see this guy. 
This is one of my disciples called Josh Phillips. Um, I actually asked him if I could use him as an example today. Um, and you'll understand why I asked this to him in a minute. But see, let me tell you a story about Josh. So I met Josh, my first teaching job in Sanford, North Carolina, fresh out of college. I was a baseball coach and a head of a Bible department. I don't know how I got that job, but here I am. And Josh is an eighth grader on my baseball team. 6'3", as an 8th grader, and he was a man. I mean, he was a man. His dad got the genes. His dad played college baseball, University of North Carolina. Um, and anyways, Josh, as an 8th grader, started on my varsity team. He batted third. He led the league in home runs, RBIs, and average as an 8th grader. After his 8th grade year, I get a call from the Atlanta Braves. After his eighth grade year, let me say that again, after his eighth grade year, and they say, what is, what is this kid? I said, he's special. I said, well, we'd like to see him. So he goes down to, as an eighth grader, to Myrtle Beach. They had a minor league stadium there, and Myrtle Beach Pelicans played there, and they worked Josh out. There's like eight college guys there that the Braves are looking to draft, and Josh, an eighth grader. And they hand Josh an, uh, uh, a wood bat. He'd never hit with a wood bat again. In his first round, he hit 10 out, 10 home runs, first round of batting practice. And so they pulled Josh aside, and they said, and his dad, Mickey, and they said, if he'll keep his nose clean, he'll be an Atlanta Brave one day. This kid's phenomenal. And so... I won't go into all the story, but uh, a, a year and a half later, we won a, st- or a year later, we won a state title together. And a year later, I took a job in Dublin, Georgia. And we left. And his parents made a decision to move him out of the school that I was at and put him in another school. And within about six or seven months, Josh had made a wreck of his life. And he was doing things in the ninth and tenth grade that he knew that were wrong, raised in a godly family, and it began just to spiral and spiral and spiral and spiral. And finally, the Braves at the end said, ah, we're not touching you. So he went uh, to another university, I won't call its name, Division I University, and got there and got into some trouble, left there, ended up at a junior college, and blew out his knee. And they basically said, you'll never play again. And so um, Josh was dating a girl at the time, and he always dabbled in music behind the scenes. He didn't want anybody to know this, and so he was really, really good at it. And so Josh, his girlfriend, made some deal with him and said, hey, if you'll put just one of your songs on YouTube and it gets so many hits, you've got to go try to be a country music singer. So he does, gets all these hits, And he says, all right, here we go. And he sets out around North Carolina to to be a country music star. And he's traveling around all these bars and honky-tonks trying to be a country music singer and started to do really, really well. Met some guys along the way that are superstars now. Played together, together, traveled together, worked together, and got his record deal. And he signs with a big record label and he begins to to do 
what they do there. And I was actually teaching at Trinity Christian School. Josh was well on his way to stardom. And um, one of my, one of my uh, uh, students in class that day, I have a picture of the team that won the state title. and I had it in my office. And somebody asked me about that picture. They didn't really want to know. Karen, you know what I'm talking about. They just wanted to get me off topic. So I began to tell them about every player, and I got to Josh. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, I got to Josh, and I, and I told him that he was in the country music industry. Young guy starting out, and God just overwhelmed me for Josh that day. Literally, as soon as that class was over, I called my wife. I said, I need to talk to Josh. I don't know how we're going to do it. So I called his record label, and you know how that goes. They're like, yeah, whatever. We'll get back to you. So Kristen's, uh, my wife, uh, got up on Facebook with Josh's sister, who she coached. And, um, and I called her daddy, Josh's daddy. His name's Mickey, dear man. And I said, Mickey, I don't know if this makes any sense at all. But God laid Josh on my heart. I need to speak to Josh. And he just began to weep. He said, me and his mama, Kim, we've been praying that someone would bring someone into Josh's life that could, that could share the truth of the gospel with him. He said, now don't tell him this, but here's his number. I'm not supposed to give it out to anybody. So that started an 11-month journey. Every day I would text Josh encouragement through Scripture. Every day. And then it kind of weaned because my feelings got hurt and he wouldn't answer my phone calls. And so about 11 months in, I'll never forget this. It was a Sunday night and, and I was in my house and it was probably 10 o'clock at night and I, and I said this, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm done with Josh. Uh, he's hurt. I didn't say this out loud, but you know, it, my pride was hurt because I'm trying to reach out to this guy. And he don't want anything to do with me. And so I told myself, I'm going to send him a text tonight. And I just said, Josh, I love you. That's all I said. I love you. Now, Josh will tell you that that night that he got that text, he was sitting on the bed. And his girlfriend, he, he said to his girlfriend, he said, why does Coach Grooms love me so much? And she said, I don't know, but you need to call him. So the next morning, I still hadn't heard from him. My feelings were still hurt, and I finally, I wrote him one more text. I said, listen, I'm not going to bother you again, but no matter what, you always remember this. You can, always, you can always call me. The phone rang instantaneously. We began to talk about life and what God was doing, and he was on the road, and he had just quit. He didn't want to be a singer anymore. He just wanted to be a songwriter in Nashville. And he stepped away because God was doing something in his life, but he didn't know what it was. And then he said to me this. He said, will you, dis will you, will you disciple me? I said, well, man, that's what I do now. <laughs> like, that's what I do. I'd be honored. So I sent him some stuff, and he began to, to work, and then he called me back, and he said, no, 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 no. I want to go deeper than this. I don't want just to read a devotion. I want to go deeper. And so we begin, it's been about two, two years now, two and a half years, that we do about a two-hour discipleship on Zoom every week. And it's crazy what God's doing in Josh's life. Three weeks in uh, to discipleship, we taught for two hours on, on baptism. And you know what he did? This is amazing. 
Josh may listen to this, but this is what he did. We were sitting on Zoom, and we finished. We were talking about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And he sits back in his chair at his house, and he throws his hands up like this, and he said, Coach, I'm lost. I'm lost. I've been to church my whole life. I have godly parents. I went to a Christian school. I was baptized when I was eight years old. I am lost. And he gave his life to the Lord that day. He said, I'm going to do this. And then the next day he calls me back. He said, no, about two hours later he calls me back after we got off. He said, I need to get baptized. Don't I? I mean, that's what scripture says, that I need to do that right now. I don't have a church. What do I do? We went up. I met him in Chattanooga. I baptized him in Chattanooga. Some people don't like that. Well, you're not an apartment member of the local church. We baptized him. Then I did everything I could to find a local church in, in Nashville that is a Bible-believing local church. And his story just goes, I could spend hours speaking to you about his story, but he is reaching people right now in Nashville. I can't name names because this is on TV. But he's sitting down with some of the greatest writers and, and entertainers in Nashville and sharing the gospel daily. You say, what's a biblical worldview? Whew. Let's look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 29. I love this. So a lawyer questions Jesus. We'll come back to Josh in a minute. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let's pause there for a second. First of all, we're not talking about a dummy here. This is a very, very, very smart person. We know that he is a lawyer. He is a brilliant guy. And he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's what's interesting in Jesus' response. Let me, let's, read, let's look at Jesus' response. What is written in the law? How do you read it? So, so let's pause there because I want to point out something. Number one is this. He knew the answer. The lawyer knew the answer before, listen to this, before he even asked the question. Does it sound familiar? How often do we know the answer when we're struggling with something or trying to wade through Scripture? We know the answer. And, and remember, his question wasn't to legitimately get an answer. He was trying to what? He wanted to really trip Jesus up. Right, what's he going to say here? See, I believe that all of us, all humanity, wants to ask that and has asked that same question. How do I inherit eternal life? What does it look? They may ask it in different ways, but that's what everybody's trying to figure out. And listen to this. He asked him, well, what, is the, what does it say? You know the answer, in other words. What, how do you read it? I love that response by Jesus. And listen to what the lawyer says. He answered, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You know, I believe that's that's a biblical worldview. I I think it's summed up right there. That's it. Remember, that's not Jesus answering that question, is it? Who's answering it? The lawyer. And I love Jesus' response. He says this, you've answered correctly. Do, listen to this, listen to what Jesus says. In other words, you knew the answer, you answered correctly. But, but then he says something very key that we can skip over if we're not careful. Very, very, very key here. Do this and you will live. Hmm. Now, he's not talking about works-based anything. I want to be very clear there. What he's saying is this. You will know them by their fruit. When you meet Jesus, it changes everything. It can't help but just spew out of you. When Josh gave his life to Jesus, it was to just watch it. I love this word. A, a, a guy who I, I, I learn under in the Dominican, his name's Craig McClure, a great teacher. He, he told me this. He says, when a, when a true person gets it, a follower of Jesus, it organically happens. You can watch it happen because it's coming from his word. So remember what I said earlier. So again, we're diving into the Word. We're not having two hours of, hey, hey, hey. We're diving into the Word. What organically happens? Number one, salvation. I didn't have to manipulate Josh. I didn't have to do any of that salvation. What was the next thing organically that happened? I've got to be baptized. Why? Because it says it right there. What began to, to, to happen after that? I got, you know what he told me? I didn't say this to him. Now, I would have i got to get into a local church. Can you help me find a local church? I need to share. I need to, I go to, he goes to writing sessions every day in Nashville, every day. And he writes. And you know what starts to happen when God changed his life? He'd go sit in these writing sessions and write with some of the greatest names in the world. And they'd, they'd say, Josh, what's wrong with you, dude? What in the world is wrong with you? You know what Josh said? Let me tell you what's wrong with me. Jesus saved my life. And you began to see things, things organically happen. I was sitting at, at, um, at home one night about 12 a.m. And I got a call from him one night. And he said to me, he said, you told me I can call you whenever I wanted to. I said, yeah, what's up? He said, man, I'm an alcoholic. What do I do? So this is what I told him. You may think I'm crazy. Again, I may never be asked back again here. This is what I told him. I said, well, I'm not going to tell you what to do. We're going to go search scripture. and We're going to see what God tells us, and he's going to reveal it very clearly to you. He said, yes, sir. Two days later, he calls me back. He says, the only thing that I can allow to be the master of my life is Jesus. Can you help me quit? And you just see this organically happen. 
And now he's imperfect. He'll tell you, I'm imperfect. You're imperfect. But listen to what he said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, do this and you will live. But listen to this, verse 20, 29. He says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So what's he trying to do? He's still trying to find that gray area. He's still trying to kind of trip up Jesus. Am I doing okay on time? Back there, good on time? You sure? Wife, I should ask my wife that. Um, doing good on time? Love you, babe. So listen to this. He tells another parable, and I want you to get this. Look what he says. In reply, Jesus said a man was going down to Jerusalem, to Jericho, when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, circle that word, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him, he passed by the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan as he was, or excuse me, but a Samaritan as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then they put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins Gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for, for any extra expense you may have. And listen to this, verse 36, 37. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, again, we could circle this all throughout the Gospels. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. We know the answer. And I, and I, you know, I could spend a couple hours on this, and I would with, with the disciples that I work with. But listen to this. You, there's three people here, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. I, I want to take a, just a moment here. I know I'm running out of time to, to think about the first person, the priest. Do you think the priest knew what he should do? Now, now, do I think that the priest was a bad guy? I don't. I, you know, this spoke to me when I study this. You know, sometimes I can be a lot like the priest. Sometimes that I can get so caught up in doing ministry that I miss ministry. Sometimes I can get so caught up in getting the task of the day done that I miss opportunities to stop and to care for someone. In ministry, it's easy to do that. I'm a task guy. So when I get to work every day, I write out my, or on Mondays, I write out the task for the week, like two pages long. This is what I get done. And that's how I work better doing that. When I'm done, I just cross through them. Sometimes what happens is I miss opportunities because I'm worried about crossing off the task. Jesus wants us to have that foundation that it's always about him. At all costs, it's about him. With our heart, with our mind, with our soul. That's our intellect and that's our heart and soul. And that's with the physicalness of what we do. 
Why am I doing what I do? Why am I going on a missions trip? Why am I doing that? My view of missions over the last 20 years has changed greatly. Because I understand biblical missiology. You see, the reason that those two guys passed right by is because it cost them. It was going to cost them their their, their time, their money, and their compassion. Did you hear that? It was going to cost them the time, their money, and compassion. And I'm telling you, when you get into begin discipleship, the compassion part is probably the greatest difficult thing that we can deal with. Because when you get involved with somebody's life, then you deal with the messy parts of life. Out of Josh's and I's discipleship group, we have now five guys. I can't name their names, but they're artists in Nashville who meet every week with us now. Guys that you would know their songs if I said their names, but I won't do that. You know what I found out about life? It's messy. You know, I tell my kids this, my older two all the time, my 16-year-old and my 14-year-old. That's what I tell them. I said, listen, uh, lost people do lost things, and that should never shock us. Lost people do lost things. And then God told us to do this with lost people. You care for them. You care for them because when you care, uh, this is a whole different series, but when, when you care for someone, it always, always, mark my words, leads to sharing with them. If I care for someone, then it will always lead at some point in my interaction with the opportunity to share the gospel. Look at what he says, go and do. Our foundation is Christ. It's why we have breath in our lungs. I used to uh, drive my kids to school every, every day. Um, my wife works now at the school, so I don't get to drive them every day. Sometimes I do. But every time we'd get in the car, especially with Colby and McKenzie, they're older, early on in their lives, we'd pray on the way to school. We'd pray. And it, one day it'd be Colby's, one day it'd be mine, and we'd pray. And I'd always pray this prayer. God, thank you for the breath in our lungs. That means I have purpose. You've got a plan for my life today. You see, we know what to do, and we know how to live. Church, are we doing it? That's a hard question, but I think that's a fair question, and I think that's a question that is not just for Sunday, but I think that's a question for us every day when we wake up. Are we going to do it today? Today is the day. There's no wasted days. I I, I want to be very clear on that. I've learned this from missionary guys in the Dominican Republic. There are no wasted days. Now, we have wasted days, don't we? We all do. But we can't waste our time because we don't have long. You know, I'm 40, what am I, 43 years old. You know, statistically speaking, I'm a statistics guy. Half of my life is over. God can call me home at any time. I can't waste a day. There are people dying around the world. There are people dying in our community right now. 
And if I waste a day, then what? God want, you know one thing I love about our Savior is He does not need us. Did you hear that? He doesn't need us, but He wants us. He wants to use us in ways that we cannot ever think imaginable. Are our lives too busy? Are we bombarded with the world? Are we acknowledgers or followers? Did you hear, hear what I said there? I used to always use this with my seniors when I taught seniors. I used to always ask this question. Are you an acknowledger of Jesus or are you a follower of Jesus? There's a big, big difference. Charles Stanley, First Baptist Atlanta, years, one of the best well-known pastors in probably the 70s and 80s and 90s, the biggest church at one time in America, stood in the pulpit one time, probably 25 years ago, and he made this statement. Now remember, that at, at, that at this point, uh, First Baptist Atlanta was, I don't know, any idea, thousands. He said this, only he could do this and still keep his job. But he said this, he looked out into his congrega- congregation, he said this, I believe 80% of you sitting here today are lost. Whew. Again, like I said, only, probably the only person in America who could make that statement from the pulpit and still have his job. Was he trying to be mean? No. What was he trying to get across? There are a lot of people who walk into the church every day who are acknowledgers of Jesus, but not followers of Jesus. See, Josh and I's story is very similar. I raised my hand, uh, came forward in a Southern Baptist church when I was eight years old. And from the time I was eight to the time I was 21, I was lost as lost can be. But I believed that I was a follower of Jesus because I did something. I was lost. 21 years old in Bible college. That's crazy, right? At 21 years old in Bible college, I was taking a course called The Life of Christ. And I was living in complete sin at a Bible college doing what the rest of college students around the world who are lost do. That's what I was doing. And I had to, I had to, to pass a class, study the life of Christ. And you know what I realized? It made me angry. Because I realized that this was not what I was taught in the church. That his life was completely different. I remember going to my professor, Dr. Bob Carver, after class one day in tears. And I said, listen, uh, the, 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 the Jesus that I read about in the Bible is not the Jesus I see in the church today. And he could have just written me off. You know what he said to me? You're right. And I went back that day at 21 years old to my dorm room. I got on my knees and I said, very frankly, I don't know if this is right. I don't know if this is biblical. This is what I said. I said, God, if I'm going to do this, then I want to do it right. And I don't know how to do it right, but I need you to bring people in my life that are going to show me. I didn't know them, but that's discipleship. You see, Matthew tells us we must have the correct foundation. Remember when we were back in Matthew? This is all about foundation, foundation, foundation. Every day I've got 
to build on that foundation. You know what's interesting about Matthew's parable? Even for the wise man, what still came? The storms. You know, I think we miss that. I love that part. Jesus wasn't telling us this. He wasn't saying, hey, if you follow Jesus, everything in your life's going to be great. I tell everybody who I disciple. Network in Nashville, my network in the Dominican Republic. This is what I tell them. Listen, when you follow Jesus, if anybody tells you it's going to be just, you know, peaches and rainbows, you better run. Because it is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. And it should be. Because it's hard. Every disciple but two. Ms. Powell, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. Every disciple but two were martyred. The, Jesus' closest people, the men that he poured into, the, the, how we should model discipleship, were killed except two of them. One, Judas, and the other, they tried to kill him, tried to boil him alive, and they couldn't. And so they threw him on the island of Patmos. So I'm going to finish with this. Question one. Question one. Is your foundation on Christ? Very simple. Is it on Christ? Are you an acknowledger or a follower? Number two, are you living it? Right? Remember what Jesus said in both, both Gospels. Go and do it. Go and do it. Go and do likewise. Are you doing it? Are you modeling it to the world? I love that word. Are you modeling it? If not, let's begin today. Maybe you just kind of need to refocus. I used to, I, I tell, I remember when Josh first got saved, uh, he used to always call me, he, he still does, but he used to always say this, man, I messed up, man, I messed up. Josh, and I used to always tell him this, it's okay. Just put one foot in front of the other. That's what you got to do, because it's hard. Just put one foot in front of the other. One foot in front of you. You know what I hear him telling guys now? Because this is what the beauty of everything is. Now Josh is discipling guys. Guess what he's telling them? Hey, just put one foot in front of the other. Thank God for the grace of Jesus Christ. It takes little steps. Put people around you. Put people around you who, who you love enough to grow you. Everybody hear me there? I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish with that. I'm almost done. I apologize. Put people around you who are not yes men. That's one thing I found in leadership. You have to put people around you who are going to challenge you. And challenging you means they love you. Why do I have to get in some arguments with my kids sometimes, my older two? Why do I have to challenge them? I don't want to because that is not fun to have to have to deal with, with, with a teenager sometimes, but I love you. You have an amazing place here at Dublin Bible. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever take that for granted. During this time of transition, continue to build on the foundation of Christ. And you're going to have to do it every day. Don't lose focus it's one thing I love about Chad and I, f I love about leadership is this. Great leaders, when they, walk, when they leave, when God calls them to the new part of their life, the church can still thrive. 
David Platt, right before he left, not David Platt, Francis Chan, right before he left his church in Simi Valley, California, the reason he left is he looked around and he realized that this, he realized that he had built this church and if he left, it could fall apart. And he knew that that was wrong. He had to build great leadership and he had not done that. So I'm going to ask the band if they're going to come forward. I apologize for going a little long today. God laid that on my heart. I wanted to share with you. As they play, I just want to challenge you. If you'll close your eyes, I'm just going to just challenge you today. During this time of transition, will you commit to daily, daily building on that foundation? Continue as a church to live out a biblical worldview. Did you hear that? Continue as a church to live out a biblical worldview. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this amazing opportunity to hear the the truth of the gospel. To hear King Jesus, to uh, uh, his words that are read, that are inerrant, that are absolute, that are true. Oh God, thank you for loving us so much to keep your word intact. And we know that it is alive and it is sharp and it is absolute. God, I pray today for the person sitting in this room that may be struggling with that foundation. Maybe maybe they have they have maybe started with with rock and now it's they heap sand on top they can't get a firm footing God I pray that they can get that sand sweep it out of there get it away from them and begin to build on that foundation again maybe they're just sitting in this room and, and their foundation is strong but sometimes they need to re, uh, rethink some things in their lives maybe they need to be refocused re-energized to go make disciples God, to the person who's sitting in this room who, like me, was lost. I was lost. And I grew up in a godly, godly home with godly, godly parents. But I was an acknowledger of Jesus. That means this. I agreed that he was the guy. I could answer all the VBS questions and the youth group questions. And I went to youth camp and you. But I was lost. God, I pray for that person, if they're in this room today, that this would be the moment, like Josh, like myself, who's willing to just put one foot in front of the other and say, I don't know how this is going to look. I don't know what this is going to be like. But I want to be discipled. I want to give my life to the Lord, and I want to grow. God, we thank you. Help us to worship you in a mighty way your name that we pray. Amen.